0: okay we're sort of cheating with that song because we're not really talking about mushrooms today or at least not exclusively about mushrooms mushrooms are the fruit and flower of fungi uh, and Uh, Fungi are just so much more pervasive and more complicated than mere mushrooms. But mushrooms are part of the whole story, obviously. And and the whole story, as long as we're talking about the whole story, let me just say something before we even bring our guest aboard, our first guest. So 450 million years ago, give or take, it was a Tuesday, I do know that much, uh, the aquatic plants uh, all said, you know what? What if we went and we went up on the land and just, you know, what if we were plants up on the land? What would that be? What would we be? So they gave it a try, uh, and it turned out that they didn't really have the kind of root system that they needed to extract what they needed to live. Guess who was there to help them? Fungi. I mean, the <laughs> the fact that there's anything happening at all today is because fungi were there to form an essentially symbiotic relationship with plants. Uh, fungi are not plants; they're not animals. Uh, they're one of the kingdoms, one of the six kingdoms of life. And one of the things that they do very well is break down complex things and turn those things into simpler things. And they're really good at doing that for plants. And what continues today is this mutualistic barter system where fungi are often breaking down complex substances into minerals that the plants need. The plants uh, are giving sugar back to the fungi, uh, and everybody's happy, except when they're not. (laughs) <laughs> because there are other, of course, there are other things that fungi do that are m- maybe not so nice. But mutualism and symbiosis is probably closer to the rule than the exception. Termites essentially farm fungi. I don't know if all termites do this, but there are termites who are essentially farming fungi because once again, they can keep the fungi in their nests, and the fungi break down things uh, enough so that the termites can enjoy them. Uh, so they they certainly want to have fungi around. So. Obviously, one of the reasons that we're talking about fungi today is The Last of Us, formerly a video game, still a video game, but now also a series on HBO Max. Uh, This is where fungi—well, I'm going to let one of the voices from The Last of Us explain what the fungi can do in just a second here. But let me tell you that our first guest today is William Beckerson, a postdoctoral research fellow with the National Science Foundation, who works— uh, in Dr. Carissa De Becker's lab, where they study exactly the kind of fungus that we are about to talk about, uh, and that um, kind of dominates the narrative, or at least the generative narrative of *The Last of Us*. Before we go any further, let's hear the very beginning of the very first episode of *The Last of Us*. You will hear, in particular, John Hanna as Dr. Newman, one of I think three panelists at a science conference, explaining what he thinks the hazards are. A one.
1: There's a fungus that infects insects, gets inside an ant, for example, travels through its circulatory system to the ant's brain and then floods it with hallucinogens, thus bending the ant's mind to its will. The fungus starts to direct the ant's behavior, telling it where to go, what to do, like a puppeteer with a marionette, and it gets worse. The fungus needs food to live, so it begins to devour its host from within, replacing the ant's flesh with its own. But it doesn't let its victim die, no. It, it keeps its puppet alive by preventing decomposition. How? Where do we get penicillin from? Fungus. <laughs> oh. Dr. Schoenheist, you're in distress. Fungal infection of this kind is real, but not in humans. True, fungi cannot survive if its host's internal temperature is over 94 degrees, and currently there are no reasons for fungi to evolve to be able to withstand higher temperatures. But what if that were to change? What if, for instance, the world were to get slightly warmer?
0: All right, and so we know, well, we know where that goes. Uh, and by the way, that, that particular conversation takes place, I think, maybe in the 1960s or something. So we know what happened after that. William Beckerson, uh, I already introduced uh, with us today. Uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation.
2: Hi, hey, thanks for having me on the show. Glad to be here.
0: So one thing that you know, nice uh, Dr. Newman doesn't tell us is kind of why the fungus uh, would do this. Uh, we should say this is a real uh, fungus. Maybe just tell us about the real fungus itself. We're talking about a, a cordyceps uh, fungus, right?
2: Uh, yeah. yeah. Let me give you some background. Um, so the particular fungus that they're talking about in the show is now called Ophiocordyceps. So at, at the time of the uh, uh, creation of the game, These were just being described, so we called them cordyceps to begin with, but as we got more and more genetic sequencing, uh, we realized that there's dozens of species of these, most of which are really host-specific to specific uh, uh, insects. Now, in this case, opiocordyceps means uh, Latin for snake-like. So these (laughs) really cool videos you see of the mushroom growing out the back of the ant's head, and also this, similar to the mushrooms in The Last of Us that you see, they're they're very snake-like, uh, hence the name Ophiocordyceps. And this all basically begins with a spore. So the spores fly out from the fruiting body, or as we call them, a mushroom, and they land on a new host, and in most cases an ant. And the spore germinates into the ant and starts to grow like a yeast-like single cell inside the hemolymph, which is the basically the fluid of the insect that has the blood and the fungus will establish itself uh, over the course of about a week um, and things will go on as normal now as we see the disease progress you'll see um, the ants start to exhibit unusual behaviors Uh, one of the first most notable behaviors is they abandon their social roles in the nest now ants are usually very social creatures they play guardian roles for the nest. They take care of the brood, they do foraging tasks. But when infected with Ophiocordyceps, they abandon these roles and and leave the nest. And this is really important for the fung- fungus's evolution because ants can smell when other ants are sick. So if detected, those ants are promptly terminated and taken very far away from the nest and it's, it's the end of the road for the fungus as well. So this first manipulation is to cause them to leave the nest and then we see something that's pretty common among all parasitic uh, manipulation in terms of uh, animal parasites for behavioral manipulating parasites called summit disease. And this is where the ants climb high up into the canopies or, or high up near uh, nearby structures. And the third and, and, and one of the most famous is behavioral manipulations is the death grip. So the fungus actually causes the insect to bite down with its mandibles in a fashion where it can no longer let go. And it's at this point where the fungus completes its life cycle, grows a new snake-like fruiting body out the back of the head and spreads more spores at an elevated position that allows the spores to spread further on the wind, thus giving the fungus an evolutionary advantage to spread easier.
0: Right. And the whole thing sounds kind of diabolically almost intelligent, but it's not. It's just the fungus does have an interest, obviously, in in persevering. Uh, It has an interest in having there be more fungi of its type. And so that's why it wants the ant to go way up high (laughs) Uh, and then release all these spores. But see, I just use that word want. It doesn't really want anything. It just kind of seems that way
2: precisely. A lot of times in, in biology, especially in evolution we we use these terms that are anthropomorphic uh, to describe you know, like smart pathogens or smart strategies. but at the end of the day it really is a process of trial and error where the pathogens that did not cause these specific behavioral phenotypes failed to reproduce and therefore their lineage dies out. And it's only these few that have random mutations that cause these very bizarre things to happen at very specific times that become wildly successful and spread so quickly, they become the dominant lineage of that fungus.
0: So uh, watching The Last of Us or playing the game, the video game, The Last of Us, we see a newly infected host person maybe start with just one simple Twitch uh, and and then other things happen and it kind of goes into an almost furious phase where it's running around, uh, you know, almost uncontrollably. Um, How close is that to what we would see in an ant?
2: You know, I'm, I'm honestly a huge fan of the series and I'm a little bit biased because of my research, but they clearly did their homework while they were making the game and, and uh, making the the TV series. One of the things that we found when we started to bring these Ophiocordyceps infected zombie ants, as we call them, into the lab are some more subtle behavioral changes, one of which is uh, what was referred to by Dr. David Hughes as the the drunkard's walk. So you, you start to see these ants become very zombie like in terms of their walking patterns and they they start to have muscle twitches and tremors and, and what one might, you know, anthropomorphize as a seizure. So the the game drew a lot of inspiration from some of the real life phenomena that we see during this infection.
0: Um, So I wanted to see which one of us would use the Z word first, but I was kind of waiting you out a little (laughs) bit. uh, And there you are. So we should say you've played this game, right? Um, And I, I guess maybe one question I have. Well, first of all, just talk a little bit about what it's like for you to play that video game, knowing what you know.
2: So I'm, I'm a huge consumer of zomb, zombie media in general um i've, I've always kind of been interested in, in good bad any kind of horror films so uh, of course i was really interested in, in this one in particular and the thing that i really like about the game and the series is just the 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 fact that it's not um it, it's not uh just the dead come back to life and in these really uh, implausible scenarios, but rather it's something as like n- normal almost or mundane as a, a rogue fungus. And to me, that makes it somehow more scary that it's uh, just this this force of nature that is is sort of taking over in, in, in a normal evolutionary fashion.
0: And I think, you know, when you say that too, it makes me think, you know, you could see a, a, um, a movie like Jurassic Park or you can see a movie where crocodiles kill people and you could think, well, I just won't go to that island or I won't go where there's crocodiles. Yeah. You can't go where there aren't funguses. There are funguses in the room you're sitting in right now in the room that I'm sitting on. There are funguses on our bodies uh, and there are funguses on every possible continent and every possible climate. Right.
2: Absolutely. And if you don't believe us, just leave a block of cheese out on your counter for a couple of days and see what happens.
0: Right. So, um, you know, at the beginning in that clip that we heard, well, actually, uh, we should say that the, the inventor of the video game, uh, who has also been very heavily involved in this series, Neil Druckmann, uh, was inspired uh, by none other than David Attenborough, uh, who is going to say in this clip some of the same things uh, that William has just said. But, uh, but it's David Attenborough, you know, it's an excuse to play uh, that voice. Here we go. A2 cap.
1: These bullet ants are showing some worrying symptoms. Spores from a parasitic fungus called cordyceps have infiltrated their bodies and their minds. Its infected brain directs this ant upwards. Then, utterly disorientated, it grips a stem with its mandibles. Those afflicted that are discovered by the workers are quickly taken away and dumped far away from the colony. It seems extreme, but this is the reason why. Like something out of science fiction, the fruiting body of the Cordyceps erupts from the ant's head.
0: Well, you know, he says, like something out of science fiction, but actually it's not like something out of science fiction. This is all over science fiction. We're going to be talking uh, to Jeff Vendermeer uh, at the end of the show, who at this point is probably the king of fungal uh, fiction, but not the uh, the inventor of it. But William, just so we don't panic people, so nice Dr. Newman is sitting there making everybody really afraid, talking about how the earth gets a little bit warmer, things start to change. Um and, and funguses would maybe start to adapt so that they could handle the warmth inside a human body, this isn't something that's going to happen by, say, August, right? I mean, this is <laughs> something that would take quite a long time. I'm, right. Yeah, this yeah, August
2: and maybe 10 million years or so, <laughs> yeah. perhaps. You know, uh, just, just to reiterate, um, you know, some of the reasons that we're renaming these fungi are because we're finding out that even different species of ant have different species of Ophiocordyceps that infect them. And even if you try to infect different ants with other Ophiocordyceps in a lab setting with very controlled variables, you don't get a completion of the life cycle. So these pathogens have become so host-specific that they're not even able to jump host to other ant species. So the, the idea that they would jump host to something as different as a vertebrate or a mammal with you know an internally regulated body temperature is is quite quite a leap of uh, uh, yeah, of logic.
0: You know, uh, one of the ways that you've been using verb forms is sort of, we've been discovering. Uh, and I mean, that's maybe an important point. Uh, the We're, royal we. <laughs> well, no, not so much the royal we, but that kind of idea of, because I mean, obviously, I you know, funguses have been looked at, I think, since at least the 17th century through microscopes and stuff like that. I think Hook, uh, one of the first things he did with his complex microscope was look at a fungus. But we don't really know, I mean, what there's like... 150 175 named species and probably three to five million fungus that we just don't know what what they are
2: yeah it's it's an amazing amount of biodiversity and and just if we only consider these zombie fungi themselves um dr joao arju from uh the new york botanical gardens has a couple papers where he basically just goes to the the tropics and comes back and has discovered 10 new species of ophiocordyceps Um, And and, in publishes on their different morphologies and different uh, uh, life cycles. So you know, even just within the zombie-causing fungi, there's tons of diversity and tons of species we don't yet we haven't yet discovered.
0: So uh, I mean, maybe my last question, and this is sort of a stupid question in a way, but. I mean, the more that I learn about these uh, these life forms, the more I mean they're they're marvelous, and we you know kind of owe everything to them in a way. Uh, but they're also a little bit scary, and they can wipe out crops, and they can kill you know elm trees like all the elm trees. Um, I, do they freak you out at all? I mean, how do you feel working? At, uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would I would say I'm, I'm firmly, I'm very
2: comfortable with working with these ophiocordyceps uh, in general, but no, fungal pathogens as a whole are a very concerning problem, specifically with global warming. Um, as you see temperatures increasing, we are going to have more instances of fungal pathogens, not just for humans, but also uh, for other agriculturally relevant crops. Um, Cavendish bananas, for example, are being ravished by a, a fusarium outbreak right now. So, um, you know, these are things that we should you know, keep be
0: keeping an eye on. I mean, there's even a theory that Post uh, post asteroid sixty six million years ago, the funguses is where the fungi, fungi. Everybody says this word <laughs> differently. I've discovered. I'm going to say fungi today. The fungi were having a party, right? There's a lot of dead stuff around for them to eat, and they they were fruitful and multiplied. Uh, And there's a possibility that because they could go after cold-blooded creatures more easily than they could after warm-blooded creatures, for all the reasons Dr. Newman told us about, uh, that they may have contributed to the end of the dinosaurs. I don't know whether anybody knows that for certain or not, but it's kind of an indication, William, of how pervasive and comprehensive their impact can be.
2: Yes, I'd uh, say it's a fair fair bet to say, you know, long after we're gone, that fungi will will still be alive and kicking. All
0: right. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, We're going to uh, meet some more uh, scientists who study uh, these organisms. We're also going to meet somebody who intentionally grows the fruit of one of these organisms, or actually multiple organisms. Uh, It's all coming up right after this.
2: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery.
1: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Did you say it the first time? Did you say this is the last time? You say it again. character seeps
4: into your bones. I feel cold, amused. Keep me in the dark. Keep me in the dark. Keep me in the dark.
0: You see what we did there, right? <laughs> we're going to be talking about mushrooms in just a second, so keep me in the dark. You see what we did? All right. But we're going to talk uh, more about fungi or fungi or fungi. I mean, really, I've heard them. Uh, I've heard experts pronounce the word all three different ways as I got ready for today's show today. Uh, but Patricia Kasian is joining us. We'll see uh, how she says it. Mycologist um, and visiting assistant professor of biology at Bard College. Uh, welcome to our conversation. In just a second, we'll be joined by Chris Pacheco, uh, owner of Seacoast Mushrooms in Mystic, Connecticut. I believe I've actually bought mushrooms from uh, Seacoast Mushrooms at farmer's markets. Uh, but uh, Patricia uh, Kasian, first of all, you know, mushrooms are just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, uh, when we start talking about fungi, they they are everywhere. As I was saying to William, and maybe you can elaborate on this, there's sort of like a, isn't a climate that they can't function in, right? They're in the Arctic, they're in the jungle, they're everywhere.
5: Yeah, exactly. So, hi, thanks for, for having me. I'm happy to be here to chat about fungus with you. But, yeah, to your question, uh, fungi are globally ubiquitous. They can be found in terrestrial systems, forests, certainly, but also marine environments and in fresh water, freezing temperatures, uh, hot, arid climates. Yes, they've adapted to pretty much everywhere on Earth.
0: So these are all kinds of organisms that whose names we do maybe sling around a little bit more uh, freely, whether it's yeasts or rusts or smuts, um, and so maybe before we talk about any dangers that they pose to us, we should probably talk about all the pleasure uh, that they bring to us, whether in the form of blue cheese or wine. Or tell us tell us about all the things that uh, that fungi do that we actually do enjoy.
5: Absolutely, yeah, That's some of my favorite stuff on Earth are food things that in- involve. Uh, fungi in their like their creation. So uh, the fermentation of wine, for example, is driven by a yeast. Um, and then cheeses of all sorts are driven by numerous di- different fungal species and also bacteria. Um we have our breads, of course, that are risen with yeast. So some of the best food on the planet that we have um, fungus to thank for. <laughs>
0: So there's such an interesting combination of symbiotic organisms, who, as I was saying in the first segment, are essential uh, to to plant life, um, and yes. and parasitic uh, organisms as well. Who, I mean, they they make plants be able to function and get the minerals that they need. On the other hand, they can essentially wipe out elms or chestnuts, or I, I think even the Irish potato. Famine was caused by something kind of like a fungus. So I don't. I mean, I suppose there's no grand explanation for all that, but maybe talk about that paradox.
5: Sure. So I think it's important to think about parasitism and mutualism as being on a spectrum of symbiosis. So the word symbiosis is used to describe um, a group uh, interactions between organisms of different species. And those interactions are neither, it's not in a word that inherently means something good or bad. I think mm-hmm. in common speech, symbiosis is used sort of positively. But in the context of biology, it's actually describing an entire spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you would have mutualism, which would be scenarios like uh, the mycorrhizal fungi that form partnerships with trees. And they, both species in that in- interaction are helping each other thrive. And then you have like sort of in the middle is something called commensalism, which in which one partner is benefiting and the other is sort of just neutrally, you know, like having a neutral impact on that partner. Mm. Um, and then on the other, the far end of the spectrum, um, apart from mutualism is parasitism. And that's where one species is taking, you know, at the direct expense of the other. So life all around us is in some sort of symbiosis, in all different directions in, um, all the time. <laughs> so no species, li- species lives within a vacuum. All species are encountering each other in various ways to various extents. So you can kind of think of symbiosis as like the primary mode <laughs> of life in that all species are inter in interaction. Um, and, and then there's different ways to talk about like the level of that interaction and the depth of that interaction.
0: I Got it. Okay. So, um, to that point, another thing we've sort of danced around it or alluded to it, but if mm-hmm. there were no fungi, we would be up to our armpits and dead stuff, right? I mean, one of the big, they, <laughs> yes. they are the sort of waste removal system or uh, uh, contractors uh, of our ecosystems. Can you say a little bit more uh, about that?
5: Sure. So, um, along with other organisms like bacteria and some invertebrates, so like insects, Fungi are decomposers, so they, or some fungi are, not not all of them do this, but many do. Many are able to break down dead or dying organic matter and sort of break open the physical structures that contain the nutrients of those that have been bound up in the tissues of those organisms. So like dead plants or dead animals. Um, and they're able to sort of initiate this process of recycling those nutrients by making them available um, to other organisms like kind of releasing them into the soil. Maybe they're taking that those nutrients up into their own bodies and then something eats that body of the fungus and kind of allows that material just to constantly move through an environment. So if you were, it's kind of hard to imagine this, but if you could imagine, for example, that um, every time a tree fell, it just stayed there. It didn't decompose in any way. You know, very quickly we would be covered Uh, the whole planet could be like covered in just massive tree trunks that have just accumulated massively. Um, And But actually there was a period on earth Earth in which this did sort of happen, um, where plants were growing and dying and then very not quick to be decomposed. And that's because the fungi had not yet evolved the capacity to break down um, cellulose. Um, So this is something that actually did sort of happen for a while that so much plant material just accumulated and then under its nor the, the weight of its own, like, like its own weight, it's sort of compacted. Um, and that's where actually a lot of our coal comes from, from the, from what, uh, like this process that, um, happened prior to fungi being able to quickly break down that material
0: so I, we're in just a second going to talk to chris about uh one of the fruits uh of uh, of funguses but our fungi let's talk about the opposite of that which is because mm-hmm. i don't think we really said the even the word mycelium yet maybe we have but so I mean, <laughs> a, a characteristic uh of these uh, organisms is just this incredible network <clears throat> that you don't see right stuff that's just underground and out of sight but but tell us just how maybe kind of describe i think that's what the credits on and Last of Us are all about, <laughs> are these just incredible webs of tendrils and lines and stuff like that. But say more.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So um, a lot of fungi form my, what we call mycelial networks. So the mycelium is a network of fungal cells that moves through substrate. So that could be soil or, or dead trees or animal tissue. Um, and essentially the, the cells grow outwardly searching for water, for nutrients and for partners for, so that they can have sex or for the roots of other plants or other mycelial networks so they can form greater networks and combine and share resources. They can send all sorts of information through this network. So it could be literally material for, for nutrients. So nitrogen and phosphorus, for example, Um, And they also are able to like sense each other through, you know, chemical signaling in or in order to perform various functions um, necessary for their survival, including mating and, and, you know, finding partners for, for sexual recombination. Importantly, not all fungi uh, form this type of network, but a lot of mushrooms do. So a lot of the visible, what we call macro fungi form these types of structures. Um, But then there's certain there's like single celled fungi and, and other types of Fungi that do not produce these types of networks. Um, I think it's also important. A lot of people are inclined to compare mycelial networks to like the roots of a tree. But I think that analogy is not excellent because the mycelial networks of fungi are much more dynamic than uh, plant roots. For example, they travel, they can move, they can, they don't have to be in the same place, um, you know, just growing out from a fixed point. Uh, they also are some, the where the fungus can overwinter, particularly if you're thinking like in temperate environments where you have seasonal growth of mushrooms. Whenever you don't see the mushroom, it's not that the fungus isn't there anymore. It's that it's underground in this mycelial state. So it it can move through different areas, pop up mushrooms every once in a while, depending on like the season or, or this the circumstances, and then it can travel again and move and and also this is where it like sex occurs and other other physiological functions. So that it really separates. Um, fungi from plants in
0: this way all right, you've mis- mentioned sex and mating uh, about half a dozen times here, so now you've got everybody's <laughs> attention. So my understanding of this is it isn't it isn't like pistil and stamen and anything like that. it's uh, I don't know I heard one mycologist say in some ways that there are like hundreds of sexes. Um, explain how it is that these organisms, which are not plants, they're not animals, they're not bacteria, how do they mate?
5: So that's a great question. And yes, I guess I did set this up (laughs) by talking about that. But um, basically fungi, there's all sorts of different ways in which they're reproducing. So it's really hard to summarize because as you mentioned in the earlier segment, we were talking about millions of different species. So there's so much variety in how this plays out. But what we do know is that it's really common for fungi to not have just like a typical binary mating type. So what we're quote unquote male and you know quote unquote female. Some in some species, actually, the 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 most that I've heard of that's recorded right now is that there's a fungus gets um, called Schizophyllum commune, or the common name is the split gill, and that fungus has we think about twenty three thousand different mating types or sexes, and that means that there's basically it's just there's not it's, it's this very complex way of like exchanging information across your genes. So it just it doesn't really resemble this kind of clear black and white way of that. We often conceive of sex in in biology.
0: Right. The parties must be wild. Um, Yes. (laughs) uh, Chris Pacheco, time for you to join us. Owner of Seacoast Mushrooms in Mystic, Connecticut. I think I bought your mushrooms both in the Stonington Farmer's Market and the New Haven Farmer's Market. Uh, And these are not necessarily your mother's nice, cute little button mushrooms. Right. Um, Talk about how many different types of mushrooms you are growing and selling for consumption
4: sure thanks this is chris here thanks so much for having me on the show this is this is so exciting interesting i learn something every time i talk to somebody about mushrooms <laughs> fascinating uh sure so we produce about uh probably about a dozen different varieties of mushrooms and uh they sort of categorize them to like the, the gourmet mushrooms as opposed to the other mushrooms that people tend to consume and i think the biggest difference there is the medium that they grow on where the mushrooms you're you grew up with or or find typically in a grocery store grow on sort of a a medium that's like a manure-based medium where the gourmets, as we refer to them, grow on a a wood-based substrate, like a cellulose-based substrate.
0: Yeah, actually, I at one point went up to one of those big mushroom farms in Franklin, Connecticut, and you could see where there used to be a, a mug or a sign that disgruntled office workers would have that said, more or less, I'm like a mushroom, they keep me in the dark and feed me BS. Um, but, um, <laughs> sure. but Totally
4: different. Totally if you're gourmet, di- yes. you get light. You get light and you get, light, light all and you get
0: wood. Um, so, yeah, I know that you, I think you told Lily Tyson that the mushrooms kind of have different personalities, different strains of mushrooms <laughs> have different personalities. Sure. Tell us about that.
4: Well, I think that's the uh that's that's the way we use to describe it, right? It's it's mushrooms are I consider them to be temperamental. They're like uh like a small child who hasn't learned how to communicate yet. They have needs, but we don't know exactly what they need and so whether it's um we we sort of take guesses at what they're looking for. Do they need more light? Do they need more water? Do they need more fresh air? Is the CO2 level too high? Um, is it the humidity in the room? What are the variables that are affecting the mushroom from producing this beautiful fruit body we're after? And so you know, myself, as well as the the crew at the farm, I, I'll go in and find someone talking to the mushrooms. I'll find someone singing to them. And I think it's all, all just our, our way of trying to help Mother Nature along and get her to provide the, the fruit that we're looking for from these um, the, the, these mushroom substrates.
0: So I will admit that when I buy your mushrooms or there are other, other farmers markets where you buy uh, other people's mushrooms, I'm aware of the person that I'm bringing them home to who probably has pretty conventional ideas about what color mushrooms are and what shape <laughs> mushrooms are. And I think people are a little bit scared uh, sometimes of the more exotic looking ones. I, I don't know. Is there a particular kind of mushroom you wish more people would summon the courage to try?
4: Great question. I'd like them to try everything we have to offer them because the, you're right though, the colors are there. I mean, golden oysters, pink oysters, blue oysters, the, the mayataki, all known as the, you know, a common name, the hen of the woods. Um, they're, they're all delicious and they all bring different flavors and different health benefits to the folks who want to consume them. Um, I, I encourage people to try them all. You're going to find at least a one mushroom type that you're going to enjoy. I find so many folks who are, who are afraid of them or they had this bad experience once and so we sort of very slowly but bring them down this path where folks have tried new mushrooms and I love hearing the stories as people come back to me and say, you know, you've, you've changed your life. And so, well, no, I didn't really do it. The mushrooms did it. But happy to make that introduction.
0: They do have like vitamins and nutrients and stuff like that, right? It took me a while to sort of grasp that whole idea
4: oh, they, sh- they sure do, right? They get a lot of it from the materials that they're consuming, but they they definitely do. And they all have a, a host of different health benefits that you can realize as a result of including mushrooms in your diet. Um, there are some mushrooms that are supposed to improve cognitive brain function. There's other mushrooms that are supposed to boost your immune system. And um, there's a number of different, and I'm not going to try to get into some of the, the details. I'll let folks who are more educated in this in the subject share you know their experiences their knowledge on it but there's a a tremendous number of different health benefits that people can realize as a result of incorporating these mushrooms into their diets absolutely
0: all right so uh patricia before we have to go to break i want to get your reaction to some of that uh but uh and and then we'll we'll go ahead just react anyway i'd love to know what you're thinking while chris is talking
5: great I, i well i love thinking about um mushrooms and their personalities i think I think people as a as a scientist, I think people are already surprised that I have such an emotional attachment to my subjects. Um, but I do. I, I love I love and I love when people speak about mushrooms in a more dynamic way, other than just being like a specimen, right? So I, I I appreciate that whole. I love that you have your staff like are singing to them <laughs> and and just being like kind to them, um, speaking lovingly about them. I'm I'll, I'm here for that.
0: <laughs> right. Although the so. mushrooms, I think when they're alone, they just go. Well, these people are weird. <laughs> they come in and sing to <laughs> Possibly, us.
5: Possibly. Yeah. What
4: is oh, that? Oh, I can definitely tell you they make they make me laugh and they make me cry. So they've got something going on there. Uh, they yeah. found some ways to communicate. <laughs>
0: All right. You guys are delightful and you're a good team. I would start doing, uh, you know, taking it on the road to some mycology forums. Uh, Patricia Casey is mycologist visiting assistant professor of biology at Bard College. Chris Pacheco was the owner of Seacoast Mushrooms in Mystic. When we come back, we will be talking to the current king of fungal fiction. Jeff Vandermeer returns to our show.
3: Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories, and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org W-A-T. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media,
0: and Connecticut Humanities. Time to see some thank yous. Of, first of all, to Cat Pastor, our technical producer, wonderful as always. Senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She produced this episode. And a special thank you. I came into the studio today, and there was a present waiting for me. And first of all, I'd like that to become a tradition. Uh, if, if, <laughs> it could be anyway. It turns out it wasn't for me anyway. It's this beautiful uh, dog food or perhaps dog water bowl for my dog Declan that was made by Susan at Birch Mountain Pottery. It's way too good for him. I mean, he'll like it. But he likes everything. I want I want that bowl. I, I may just start eating dog food, so I'll have a chance. It's such a beautiful, beautiful bowl. Thank you so much for sending that. Uh, please start working on tomorrow's present, those of you who are out there. Jeff Vandermeer is joining us. He's been with us once before from the Yale Writers' Conference, author of a number of books, including the Southern Reach Trilogy, which includes Annihilation. He recently co-founded the Sunshine State Biodiversity Group, an environmental nonprofit, uh, and he is— the king of fungal fiction. Uh, We'll explain why. Although, Jeff, we should say that 100 years before there was Jeff Vandermeer, there was a man named William Hope Hodgson uh, who wrote (laughs) some of the early examples of this where there would be strangely shaped fungi or fungi that would do all kinds of not entirely pleasant things, right? This idea has been around for a while in fiction.
3: Oh, sure. Um, And I think it's probable that uh, the kind of alien nature of mushrooms has been just kind of a, a something that's attracted writers for a while, and William Hope Hodgson is, is such a weird, pure, self-taught, strange talent that he has definitely been somebody who's been an inspiration for me.
0: So uh, we should say that this has come up more than more than once in your work. So how did this all get started? How how did you decide that fungi were were the you know your favorite things to scare us about? <laughs>
3: well i mean i was i've always been fascinated by strange things in science my dad's a scientist and um i think that i've been fascinated by the alien nature of fungal uh, life cycles i must say that i've been quite happy to hear that there are different pronunciations (laughs) of fungal and fungi and everything because i was feeling a little bit inadequate there with my pronunciation but but anyway compared to us mammals they're they're very odd and so for a fiction writer it even like suggests different structures for storytelling but but also, there's a lot of um, things that are unknown about mushrooms, so that leaves a lot of room for extrapolation. Um, I also love this idea of spores being all around us but invisible, uh, because it kind of highlights how there's so much about the world's workings that we don't actually see, but that you know impacts us. So there's things like that. There's there's facts about individual mushrooms. I could go on forever. I'm sure you don't want me to, but. There's a mushroom that if you replace the earth around it with iron filings, it will absorb the iron filings and become partially made of iron.
0: That's amazing. That is weird. I actually do want you to go on about it. My time is limited, <laughs> but I do want you uh, to to go on about it. So, I mean, I, I guess this almost doesn't need to be said. Well, let, let, me, let me back up and go to another yeah. place, which is that I think one of the other things about horror that can be very, very mm-hmm. effective, mm-hmm. I mean, if it's just a monster and it looks like a monster and it's scary and stuff like that, that's mm-hmm. one thing. But is there something about the beauty of mushrooms that makes it, uh, a kind of eloquent form of, of, of horror, that it's not clear the first time you see some of these things that you should be wary of them because they, they look like something you should either eat or love.
3: Absolutely. And I, I think that something I try to grapple with in my fiction is the relationship of beauty and horror and beauty and not horror because just because something's beautiful doesn't automatically make it um, good. <laughs> <laughs> and just because something is considered ugly or horrific um, because of you know societal norms doesn't necessarily mean that it is and so I play with that a lot with regard to the mushroom stuff in the books and uh, kind of play on what like human reactions are like what your reptile brain is telling you uh, even though some of what your reptile brain tells you now in terms of like don't eat that don't eat this it's, it's fairly irrelevant to our everyday modern lives so so definitely um, there's that um, and I think you know I've used it for horror because it is dislocating because the more you delve into the 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 elements of it it, it seems um, particularly unsettling to human beings this idea of being like taken over by spores for example um, you know even though we're all taken over by microorganisms every day <laughs> in beneficial ways you know so so I find that that kind of juxtaposition interesting too
0: right no we, yeah we're, we're taken over in, in good good ways and, and yeah. we we want to be and we want to not wipe out those kinds of biomes but The other thing, you know, I mean, when we talk about the future of humankind, we often start talking about transhumanism and kind of the notion Mm -hmm. that we'll be blended more with technology somehow and perhaps still be recognizably human. That's something you kind of played around a little bit with your your fungus friends. Uh, Mm -hmm. Give give a couple of examples of that from your work.
3: Yeah, so I have these books that people know me for Annihilation, but I would say that I staked out a a fungal claim much earlier in these uh, Ambergris novels, City of Saints of Mad Men, Shriek, and afterward and Finch where I basically created an imaginary city that was dependent on fungal technologies and had to extrapolate. And as the books got more dystopian, those uses got more horrific, as you were talking about. So for example, at one point, detectives in the city used memory bulbs to solve crimes. And these are mushrooms that they plant uh, in murder victims. And then they harvest the memory bulb, which when they eat it, gives us gives them the memories of the victims and helps them solve the crime. Um, at one point, the armies in this city use fungal bullets that can be used to colonize people they shoot at, but also are edible so they don't have to have provisions. Um, and, and that I thought was kind of an interesting, I was able to use that in a kind of a metaphorical way too to make a comment about war. And then I have these vast spy networks that are composed of spores that report back to a central mushroom for uh, lack of a better, a word but are overwhelmed because there's so much information coming in that the people who are trying to analyze it can't keep track of it all which is kind of kind of the <laughs> the way some of our surveillance systems work now and then more benignly something that you know people are actually experimenting with now which is to try to replace fiber optics with like living networks you know living tissue and so in this city telephone lines have been replaced with mycelium networks in certain ways so you know that the way the economics work around the mushrooms uh point actually in a weird way despite the dystopian aspects to a sustainable future because there's so much uh, that's biodegradable for example and that's something that you see uh being experimented with now too in the real world
0: right so um we should also say that uh and we, maybe we should get patricia or william to come back uh, to tell us about uh-huh. this but but mushrooms they have their own little wars, right? They compete with each other. Oh, yeah. you, you cut open a tree and you may see different funguses or fungi that are kind of even kind of drawing battle lines. Like, don't cross over here. I got this part of the tree. Uh, you guys can be over there. Um, and so I should say to you, Jeff Vandermeer, that people probably uh, read your books and they think, where does he get all these weird ideas? <laughs> And one answer to that is you live in Florida. Uh, I
3: do. I do.
0: <laughs> and and it's a pretty humid place. And so, uh, and you're outdoors a lot. I mean, yeah. are, have you become really attuned to the fungi around you? Or are you kind of noticing a lot of things that the average person might not notice?
3: Well, I mean, because I use it for the function and because I've started studying it for the nonprofit, um, you know, I, do, I am more attuned to it, but I'll, I'll just tell you one anecdote that kind of sums it up. There was a, a time when I was hunkered down for a book deadline. In fact, it was the second book in the Southern Reach uh, series. And I didn't drive my car for a month. And when I did open the trunk of the car, I found that the seal had broken and these red spores hissed out. (laughs) And there were actually (laughs) puffball mushrooms that had grown out of a waterlogged book. And I must say, it was a great writing day, but it was also a great reminder that North Florida is in this interesting trough of biodiversity where we're not subtropical, we're not temperate, And it's amazing for mushrooms everything grows at this incredibly intense rate but then it also decays at an incredibly intense rate so most of the time you're walking around and you're surrounded by an almost surreal landscape during certain seasons of mushrooms popping up of all kinds and you you kind of like edit it out it's like you're walking around and you're in this surreal landscape but you don't even notice it Uh, and that's kind of wonderful um and i do notice there's seasons where I can look out at the yard here and I, I know what the season is by the mushrooms. I know that there are no pollutants in certain areas of the yard for sure because of the types of mushrooms that come up. I mean, it's actually kind of a food basket out in the back there. We have chanterelles, lion's mane, hen of the woods. Um, you know, there's huge lion manes. There's lion mane mushrooms here that are the size of like two people's heads combined. I've never <laughs> seen anything like it before. So, yeah, it's kind of a surreal experience. It does, you know, definitely
0: feed into the fiction. Right. I love the uh, hissing mushrooms in the trunk uh, thing because it's like a Jeff Vandermeer thing happened to Jeff Vandermeer, you know? <laughs> I
3: know. It's like you, you write about it too much and then <laughs> suddenly real life decides.
0: Yeah, you, to, to open up the, you open up the trunk and there are these fungi going, We didn't like some of the stuff in Finch. Uh, so um, yeah, that would be the voice they used, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, no, I do a great mushroom voice. Um, so we only got about 90 seconds left in this. This is a much bigger topic. But if Patricia were here, she would say, ask not uh, what fungi can do for you. Ask what you can (laughs) do for fungi. And I, I assume, with your particularly with your new foundation, that's very much the way you want people to think too.
3: Yes. Absolutely. Rewilding is important for biodiversity, restoration of habitat. And a great way that impacts mushrooms is benign neglect. What is a dead log in your yard but a potential little fungal city? Uh, so not clearing up land, uh, leaving your dead logs to decay. You wind up with these lovely microhabitats that fungus love, and that's good for insects, too, and other organisms, and that's good for birds that eat insects. So really, you know, uh, you know taking care of, of your mushrooms is also taking care of other things as well.
0: So say a little bit more. I have more yeah. than 90 seconds. I misread the clock. But um, you know, yeah. what, what would you want people to do? If someone's listening to this and saying, okay, so I'd like to make a difference for good, what would Jeff Vandermeer right. want me to do?
3: Well, well, I think one thing that this new nonprofit, the Sunshine State Biodiversity Group, is emphasizing is that this is a scalable project. Like you can't in your yard just create an area of dead logs and, and fall and leave. It creates a microhabitat that's good for, for mushrooms and good for everything else. And then also, I think the other aspect that we need to remember is we take uh, mushrooms and fungi for for granted in that a lot of them are experiencing changes or disappearing because of climate crisis, because of other environmental factors. So just, you know, putting more of a spotlight on them, being more aware as you're walking around of what's out there, becoming more educated about it uh, can be useful, I think, for environmental causes as well.
0: All right. Now we do have to stop, but it's a pleasure to talk to you again, Jeff Vandermeer, the author of many books, including the Southern Reach Trilogy, which includes Annihilation, recently co-founded, as you just heard, the Sunshine State Biodiversity Group, an environmental nonprofit. Thanks to all of you who listened. Special thanks to Lily Tyson, Cat Pastor, and the lady who made the dog bowl, Susan.